later in Macro Sunday. It actually seems like we were smacked up at <laughs> in our forecasting. Um, yeah. You've predicted a larger than uh, a larger deficit in twenty four than in twenty three, yeah. and here we are on a trajectory towards that. So, mm. what do you make of the fiscal situation in the U.S. right now? Is it worsening? Um, I think all the incentives are there for it to worsen. You're listening to Macro Sunday, hosted by Andres Steno. Are we amidst a new supply shock? Welcome to this uh, new edition of the Macro Sunday podcast. I'm Andreas Steno, founder and CEO of Steno Research. And in a short while, we're once again joined by one of our favorite global macroeconomists, Dario Perkins of TS Lombard, to discuss this supply shock that is ongoing in the Red Sea. Will these rising freight rates wreak havoc with everyone's hopes for a cutting cycle commencing soon? Um, Outside of being joined by Dario Perkins in 10 minutes' time, I'm, as per usual, joined by you, uh, Emil Müller, Head of Research here at Steno Research. Great to see you. Cheers. Live from the abyss here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, let me remind all of you uh, listening or watching the show that this is your last chance to get 30% off your yearly subscription at stenoresearch.com. You can use macro30 to get 30% off your annual subscription today. The offer ends very soon, so make good use of it. Emil, over to you. Um, mm. Another week of renewed turbulence in the Red Sea. We know that uh, Shell uh, basically postpones uh, shipments through the Red Sea um, without any end date. Uh, so this is now spreading to oil tankers and the likes. What do you make of it here and now? Well, right now, I think it's it's. I mean, we're basically facing a cost push pressure on 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 western imports due to the to the enhanced freight rates right and as long as as the situation in the red sea continues that's that's going to that's going to remain the case so for now you should probably expect increased price pressures on on relevant goods imported from from far east especially here on our shores i think the big question is uh, to what extent will demand really uh, embrace this and and just keep volumes uh, Keep volumes up. I think it, it's you, you can debate whether retailers will, will simply just warehouse uh, the losses on their books as they just can't pass it on to to European consumers. Um, but in any event, it's it's probably something that that you should uh, keep aware of, and I, I'm most certain that policymakers are. So yeah. that's that's where we are at right now. I think, Emil, we have ongoing turbulence between Iran and Pakistan uh, amidst this. Um, and it seems like uh, some sort of an, an, an internal conflict uh, with yeah. terrorist groups. But we've had plenty of questions from clients this week on whether Iran could be tempted to get more directly involved in the turbulence in the Red Sea, for example, by distorting the supply chains out of the Strait of Hormuz. So what do you make of, of Iran's role here? Uh, do you do you continue to expect them to sort of act via proxies, or will they get directly involved themselves? 
I think they will push as far as they think they can without really enabling a, a massive escalation of direct confrontation. But I think they're, they're certainly up to no good. That's that's obvious. But I think what we're seeing between Pakistan and, and Iran right now is basically returning the favor of, of escalating through proxies to an extent. But as, I mean, Pakistan has, uh, you know, they got some nasty uh, rockets <laughs> hidden away, and I don't think the Iranians really want anything or anything uh, to do with that. But I do know that the Indians are at least back in Iran here. So I think we're starting to see some spillovers on the ge- geopolitical scene here. Um, I think the big sort of question mark is how will China eventually respond to this? But for now, they're just waiting on the sideline even though they have been trying to mediate between relevant parties. But uh, yes, if the Strait of Hormuz really gets 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 blocked, it's a whole different thing for, for financial markets. Then it's, yeah. uh, you know, uh, buy Brazilian oil, <laughs> basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, with everything you can you, you can get your greasy hands on. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's a tail risk for now, but it's something to watch, no doubt. Yeah. And in light of this discussion on Iran, um, it's time for the Trump soundbite of the week. Uh, this small soundbite is taken from the presser straight after the annihilation of um, Mr. Qasem Soleimani in Iran. Was it three or four years ago under Trump's presidency? So here's Donald talking at the presser straight after the U.S. nuked Qasem Soleimani. Targeted, injured and murdered hundreds of American civilians and servicemen. The recent attacks on U.S. targets in Iraq, including rocket strikes that killed an American and injured four American servicemen very badly, as well as a violent assault on our embassy in Baghdad, were carried out at the direction of Soleimani. Soleimani made the death of innocent people his sick passion, contributing to terrorist plots as far away as New Delhi and London. Today, we remember and honor the victims of Soleimani's many atrocities, and we take comfort in knowing that his reign of terror is over. Soleimani has been perpetrating acts of terror to destabilize the Middle East for the last 20 years. What the United States and, uh, did yesterday... We'll leave Mr. Donald Trump, um, <laughs> Emil. Speaking of Donald, uh, yeah. quite the showing in Iowa. Um, not really a surprise to us, um, but no. it seems like it was quite the surprise to the European mainstream media, to be honest. Um, at least they, they spoke uh, about the momentum for Nikki Haley for hours ahead of that uh, actual result <laughs> coming in from Iowa. Um, is uh, Donald Trump the next president? What do you make of it? I think so. I think so. I mean, uh, unless unless uh, you know the justice system gets the better of him, I think he's the next <laughs> president. That's my base case. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of wishful thinking going on here. I can I, I, I can safely say I'm quite neutral on that point. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, Emil. Speaking of U.S. politics, right? Um, mm. If we turn back time three four months, uh, you and I had a discussion on this show around the prospects for an increased deficit uh, from the U.S. federal state yeah. through 2024. Uh, mm-hmm. When we look at the sort of initial evidence uh, of this year relative to 2023, it actually seems like we were smacked up at <laughs> in our forecasting. Um, yeah. You've predicted a larger than 
uh, a larger deficit in 24 than in 23. And here we are on a trajectory towards that. So what do you make of the fiscal situation in the US right now? Is it worsening? Um, I think all the incentives are there for it to worsen. And mm. I think we're starting to see that from, from the Hill right. Uh, there's currently talks of a bipartisan uh, tax cuts uh, mm. deal taking place. And if you look at, you know, <laughs> uh, relevant economic gauges, it's not quite the prescription that the doctor will order, right? Um, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think that's the way things are going to go. And I don't think the Republicans will, will be capable of, of uh, really pushing back against it. They will take everything they can get their hands on. Uh, and Biden will just, you know, try to design the cuts in a way that's palatable to them. And at the same time, uh, appealing to relevant voter bases, right? That's, that's but, sort of the dynamics here. But Emil, can, can we even get a US recession with this kind of deficit? Well, the thing is, um, recession is basically just a you know, a rate of change of an identity in, in a sense, right? Uh, that spills over into labor markets. So if, if growth is to really uh, kick on from here, um, you would need, at least if it's driven by, by the fiscal impulse, you'll need you need an increasing amount of, of spending, right? Mm. And I think the fiscal impulse is, is going to recede somewhat uh, simply because it was as strong last year as it was, mm. but it really depends on what Yellen, uh, Yellen has uh, in store for us. Um, but yeah, uh, I think, I think it, it, uh, like, theoretically it should be, but in practice it's quite difficult. <laughs> and yeah. we don't really have much of an historical paradigm here to, to, uh, to lean on unfortunately. <laughs> so it's up in the air. But it, it kind of rhymes with um, a theme that we've discussed over and over over the past couple of months in this podcast, namely the theme of diverging inflation trends between yeah. uh, the dollar inflation and the euro inflation, for example. Mm. Um, I think there are signs of a bottoming already forming in, uh, in dollar inflation. Uh, yeah. The most recent CPI report basically confirmed that view. Uh, we also see a relatively hot PC report ahead of us uh, out of the US when we look at the sort of differences and similarities between the CPI and the PC report. Uh, mm. It seems like uh, the softness in the PC report from November will be reversed uh, in, in the December numbers released um, uh, later this month. But Emil, when we look at the discrepancies between the eurozone and uh, the US on this inflation question. Uh, mm. What do you make of that discussion in light of what's ongoing in the Red Sea and in light of what's ongoing in European fiscal policy? So I think it's very unlikely for European fiscal impulse really to increase to the same extent that it has in the United States, simply due to the political side of things. On the other hand, inflation is obviously more sensitive to uh, to import prices, which are obviously to a to an extent, a derivative of uh, of import pricing, and that would add to the existing supply chain disruptions that we've seen during uh, COVID, that we're still feeling some lag of, right? Mm. So I think European policymakers are, are a bit more on, uh, on the fence here, while the you know in the US it's more a question of of internal dynamics and growth, perhaps repricing and inflation, then catching up. 
I think that's that's probably the, the way to frame it at this at this juncture. Um, but yeah, I think if 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 you look at all the statements coming out left, right, and center, it's it's obvious that the that the Europeans sounds, uh, if not more worried, then at least as worried as uh, as the counterparts in the United States, right? Yeah. Which is interesting. I find. I don't know what you make of it. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're obviously right. Um, at least if you look at <laughs> at what's been communicated over the past week, yeah. it sounds like the European Central Bank is still stuck in at least a higher for now <laughs> mm. kind of regime. Um, mm. And they need to see inflation surprising on the downside substantially on the downside of their uh, staff projections to really move the needle here but oh boy they will be surprised on the downside e- even the market um sort of agrees with us on 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 in that assessment if you look at the ecb forecast for the first quarter uh, they forecast an average of 2.9% HICP inflation, uh, meaning that the January print will have to be above three uh, to sort of get there. Um, They probably lean on the seasonality that we saw in January, both last year and the year uh, ahead of that, uh, in, for example, utilities. Um, So this um, one-off repricing of, uh, for example, German utility prices, French utility prices, etc., through the first quarter, uh, those uh, that repricing of of the European inflation picture is basically uh, mirrored in the uh, Q1 assessment for the European Central Bank. Again, um, we have VAT increases or VAT changes. Uh, right, left, and center around the eurozone, and we <laughs> have sort of looked through the changes to the uh, VAT regimes in Italy, Spain, Germany, uh, and France. Uh, if you want to stay on top of the VAT changes elsewhere in the eurozone, uh, be my fucking guest to look through the VAT changes. <laughs> in Estonia. Uh, I, I lose mean, your mind at will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, pardon my French. But uh, point being here that we have. Um, base effects from uh, an increase in the energy VAT in Spain uh, in January. We have an increase in the VAT on a restaurant and pop visits in Germany. We have an increase in the CO2 emission cost in Germany in January. Uh, and then we have um, an increase in the VAT on diapers and tampons in, in Italy <laughs> for January as well. Uh, so, I mean, trust me, I've been through all the details. Um <laughs> so for better for worse um yeah. if you, <laughs> do elaborate <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the point being here that uh if you look at the hicp fixing pricing in uh in the uh, uh eurozone inflation market uh it seems like the market is very much on top of these vat changes uh yeah. but we're still substantially below the hicp pricing in markets due to what we what i will describe as a drift effect yeah. and one overlooked detail in spain uh, the subsidies for public transportation will be widened materially through January. Um, so it's no longer just a subsidy for uh, pensioners and, um, and and those <laughs> studying. Uh, it's basically uh, more or less a free ride for everyone. Um, mm. So that will basically decrease the cost of transportation in Spain by a lot here in January. That's one uh, effect to bear in mind. And the second thing is that... Um, the discount season is back. Uh, we 
try to map a lot of online price trends. And as far as we can see, clothing and footwear seasonality is back. Uh, the seasonality is back in airfares, uh, package holidays and stuff like that, meaning that we will get a substantial drop month on month in European inflation in January. Uh, and that's a bit in... Uh, or almost in sharp contrast to the European Central Bank projection. So what yeah, well, I'm saying here is that... We have a track I, record these past months now. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Maybe except for a couple of services prints yeah. in December, to, to, be, to be honest here. Yeah. We're, we're trying sure. to be transparent, but ahead of that, uh, three, four months in a row with basically zero uh, standard deviations between our forecast and the reality. Uh, but in any case, Emil, what I'm trying to say here is that I do not buy the consensus narrative that it will be trickier for the European Central Bank to cut interest rates than for uh, the the peers across the pond in Washington, D.C. But I know that um, Dario Perkins, um, our guest of the week, is of another opinion. Um, and he's, of course, a very uh, sort of close follower of trends in, uh, in central banks in Europe. And mm. I think he's more of the view that it will be easier for the Fed to cut interest rates. So... Um, Let's bring Dario onto the floor to discuss the central bank outlook with us. And Dario had a special request for us this week. You know, he's a recurring <laughs> guest here. Um, yeah. uh, he, he found probably the weirdest clip I've seen uh, in quite a while on the internet. And trust me, I, I, I look a lot at Reddit. So the <laughs> it goes without saying that. It's Reddit and tampons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so here is the soundbite that Mr. Dario Perkins of T.S. Lombard wanted us to introduce him by. I work 12, 12 hours, 15 hours a day in the bank. Because I put fragulakis and ascalakis out and me going up, you know, maybe sometimes maybe good, sometimes maybe shit. It's Malakia, 100% Malakia. Sometimes maybe good, sometimes, sometimes maybe shit. Our favorite macro economist in the whole world is back as a guest in the Macro Sunday podcast, Dario Perkins of T.S. Lombard. It's so great to see you again. Good to see you. I mean, that is a sort of scary introduction at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and that's on purpose. Uh, I mean, Dario, uh, we are recording hot on the heels of a week of central bank uh, speeches in Davos in Switzerland. Um, most of them basically push back against current market pricing of substantial rate cuts this year. So what do you make of, of the rhetoric from central bankers this week? Do they have second thoughts on market pricing? Well, I think that rate cuts are coming. I mean, that's not particularly that's not particularly surprising. Mm. Um, I think that um, if you if you go back to when they were they were sort of raising interest rates, uh, you remember Powell made this distinction between the destination and the journey. Um, when I look at market pricing, I actually think the destination, in terms of the level of interest rates they get to, that seems quite reasonable. You know, 150, 200 basis points in the end, I think is about right. I think the issue here is that in markets, it's very front loaded. Mm. And I think that's where you run into a bit of a problem, because I think it's going to be quite difficult to match those expectations in terms of how quickly uh, and, you know, how, how soon they, they, they cut interest rates. But in terms of the magnitude, I think that's about right. And I think that there are very good reasons for cutting interest rates 
pretty substantially at this point. I mean, you know, people seem to forget that we've got levels of interest rates that were basically unimaginable three years ago. Uh, and on any basis, apart from sort of broad financial conditions, which everybody in this industry loves, but I don't really pay much attention to, I think that, um, you know, it's very clear that monetary policy is tight. Uh, it's tight in terms of the level of interest rates, nominal. It's tight in terms of real interest rates. You know, we've got the highest real interest rates we've had in decades. And then, you know, central bankers believe in this sort of idea about neutral. Now, on the basis of their estimates of neutral, we have interest rates that are probably 200 basis points restrictive. So all of that suggests that there is a lot of scope to cut interest rates. Uh, the other part of this is that I think you have to remember how we got to where we are. And if you go back to 2022, you have central bankers basically freaking out about this 1970s nightmare scenario where they go down in history as the biggest jokers we've ever had. You know, from a sort of personal career perspective, they were looking at this and thinking, you know, oh, shit, they're going to be talking about me in 40 years time and how I screwed this up. <laughs> and, you know, that dynamic hasn't played out. So the level of interest we had included this sort of insurance against that 1970s dynamic. That has not happened. You know, inflation is evaporating. You know, I know you have Bob on last week talking about the second wave. Mm. Um, I'm not really buying into that. I don't see this second wave. I think we've just got this sort of steady uh, progress on disinflation that sort of ebbs and flows. So, you know, a couple of months, it looks like disinflation is happening very quickly. Two months later, it looks like it's stalled. And then we get another round of disinflation. That's the sort of path that we've been on. Uh, and so, you know, it's very clearly not the 1970s. And I think the incentives for central bankers have totally shifted because I think whereas you were in this sort of ask covering exercise two years ago, you know, let's raise interest rates really quick just in case this goes really wrong and we look silly. I think now, particularly the Fed, I think the Fed can see that they can actually pull off this remarkable soft landing. And as I said last time I was on here, you know, this would be their finest moment. You know, think about the pressures that central banks have been under over the last decade, you know, bailing out banks, endless QE, you know, blame for all kinds of terrible things like inequality, sometimes climate change. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if they pull this off, they can say, because they love counterfactuals, they can say, well, we prevented the 1970s. You know, that would have happened if we didn't do what we did. And actually, we did it without generating a recession. You know, that's a fantastic outcome. So I think the Fed is wants to jump at that. And I think, you know, the Fed is very keen to start interest, start cutting interest rates. I think in Europe, there is still a little bit of sort of supply pessimism. Um, there's a little bit of sort of uh, policy defeatism. Uh, I think that if you're at the ECB, you've still got the Bundesbank sort of, you know, whispering in your ear, you're going to mess this up. If you cut interest rates, you're going to look really silly. So you've still got that sort of Bundesbank view there. I think you've got a lot of supply pessimism at the Bank of England as well. Mm. But I think, you know, part of that is just that inflation is lagging in Europe. So six months time, I think it's going to look very different. So to go back to your original question, yeah, you know, rate cuts are coming. I think they will be pretty substantive over the next 18 months, two years, maybe not as rapid as um, markets are pricing in. It doesn't help that central bankers have stopped giving us very clear guidance on policy. And if you go back to December, I think Powell said, you know, we're going to do what we do and you guys have to figure it out as we go along. That's sort of what's happening. And, you know, I guess you get 
periodic disappointments in terms of how quickly central banks are cutting. But as long as they can force people to focus on the destination, which is that, you know, the tightening cycle is done and big rate cuts are coming, I don't think that's going to cause, you know, a great deal of turmoil in financial markets. I think it's just a sort of short term issue. So a bit of volatility, but nothing really nasty. Given the current turmoil in the Red Sea, Dario, I'd like to uh, pick your brain on how central banks will deal with this question of uh, rising freight rates. We've obviously seen more than a doubling of uh, freight rates between China and uh, and Europe since mid-December or thereabout. Do you see a risk here that central banks will freak out as they did in 2021 on the risk of a supply shock here? Well, it's like that old economist joke, you know, what's the impact of the French Revolution? It's too early to tell. Um, I think I think with this, you know, it is it, with this, it is too early to tell. Uh, I think that we are, you know, we're just a, a few weeks into this. Uh, I think that given what we've seen so far, I don't think anyone is going to be changing their macro views dramatically for this year, which makes a change because usually by this time in January, everyone's consensus view is sort of broken by the events in December and January. So it's possible this is the start of something big, but I think it is much too early for that. Um, I think you would need to see um, a major escalation in what's happened to really you know, drive up um, inflation. And even if that happens, I think that, you know, we're looking at a very different sort of inflation to what we had in 2022 or in the 1970s. You know, we're not going to have a sort of demand driven story. Uh, we're not going to have consumers running down the savings to support their spending as we did after the pandemic. We're not going to have that sort of revenge spending. Um, and so I don't think we're going to see the sort of breadth of inflation that we saw after the pandemic. So that that supply shock and the combination of that and the demand was so enormous that you just had this shock to the entire price level. And it went through goods, it went through services, it went through housing, it went through the labor market. You know, that was the sort of bullwhip effect that I've been sort of banging on about now for the last two years. Uh, and that, that was the, because it gave you this very broad-based inflation problem in 2022, that was what really freaked out central banks because, you know, all that nonsense that they believe about inflation expectations becoming unanchored And all of that stuff, they thought they were seeing it. You know, they thought, oh, my God, you know, this is inflationary psychology. It's coming back. This is the start of the 1970s. We're going to get wage price spirals. We're going to look like complete jokers. And, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to tell a story where you get anything resembling that, you know, from what's happening with sort of geopolitical risk. I mean, you know, my my sort of longer term thesis on this is that we are in a world now where inflation is going to be much more volatile than it was before. So, you know, that sort of great moderation in inflation, that's basically done. Uh, we're going to get more frequent supply shocks, you know, just from climate change alone, I think it gives you that. But when you sort of overlay that with this sort of very fractious geopolitical situation, which let's face it, it's just going to get worse from here onwards. I think we're going to face these periodic supply shocks. But I don't think that justifies, you know, central banks freaking out, raising interest rates very aggressively. It may slow the pace of Um, rate reductions. And I get the feeling that, you know, once again, um, the Europeans take a slightly more pessimistic view of all of this stuff than the US, uh, in part because it's closer to home. So that, you know, the impact on European shipping is probably a little bit more pronounced. The impact on euro inflation is probably a little bit more pronounced. And they only really target inflation, or they're supposed to 
only target inflation. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't buy the idea that it's going to it's going to radically change things. I think, you know, this is a, this is a world where central banks may disappoint market expectations in the short term, and I suspect the Europeans will disappoint market expectations more than the Fed. And I think this whole narrative plays into that. But I think that was probably going to happen anyway. Dario, if we set rates forecasting aside and uh, look into the mechanics of a supply shock, such as a rapid increase in, in freight rates due to distortions of the shipping supply um, chains, how does the proper policy response from central banks look like to such a supply shock? Uh, what does history tell us about um, supply shocks and how to deal with them? Well, I mean, the, the, the sort of classic um, mechanism is that you you don't respond to them because if you react to supply shocks, if you try to um, sort of squeeze the volatility of inflation and make it less volatile, you make the real economy more volatile. And I think that, you know, the one time they departed from that was after the pandemic. You know, I think a lot of that was um, supply driven. Um, you know, we can start using the transitive word again now because it's not, you know, politically incorrect. It's sort of coming back into fashion a little bit. Uh, I think a big part of the post-COVID inflation was transitory. It was related to a sort of one-off shift in the price level. A lot of it was related to supply, or at least the balance between supply and demand. But the demand was mainly sort of temporary anyway because it was one-off fiscal stimulus. Uh, and central banks did react very aggressively to that. And I think they made the real economy more volatile because of that. And the fact that we are now on the brink of, you know, quite an aggressive monetary pivot where they're going to have to take back, you know, a big part of the tightening that they did just sort of proves that they overreacted uh, and that they have to take it back. So I think, um, you know, that what they should do going forward is not react to the supply side. I suspect that's what they will do. Uh, I think it would take a real broadening of inflation, you know, into other components for them to start to think, oh, my God, you know, inflation expectations and all of that nonsense. Uh, I don't think that's what's going to happen. So I suspect that they will try to look through it. I think it's easier for the Fed to look through it than the ECB just because of their natural inclination. Mm. Speaking of the uh, European Central Bank, Dario, they released a um, a working paper on this exact topic of supply chains distorting the inflation picture over the past uh, week or so here. I don't know whether you read the entire working paper, but it seems like at least some of the academics within the European Central Bank uh, are now back highlighting supply chains as a major uh, sort of reason behind the inflation scene in 21-22. So what do you make of a central bank pop? Publishing such a working paper ahead of a rate cutting cycle is it something that we should take note of? Uh, well, I think they sort of accepted the obvious, haven't they? I mean, you know, it was always this way. I mean, it was always clear um, that Europe wasn't facing a sort of very strong demand induced inflation. Um, you know, that the economy always looked much more fragile than the US. There was no discernible consumer boom. You know, you can't tell a story about a European consumer boom. I mean, I, I can't see one anywhere. Um, you didn't even get any revenge spending. So, you know, you didn't have the boom in goods demand. And then in the service sector, you just had this sort of very gradual recovery to where we were before the pandemic, but no sort of overshoot, no revenge spending, no pent up spending. Yes, they had um, high levels of excess saving. 
but that never got spent. And in fact, it keeps going up because they're so pessimistic. So, you know, how you could look at that and tell a demand story for Europe, I never really understood. Uh, it's just a pity that it's taken them, you know, so many basis points of rate increases <laughs> to realise what was obvious right from the start. So, you know, is there some sort of conspiracy here where they're deliberately publishing something right now? It doesn't really match with what they're saying. I mean, you know, if you if you listen to what the ECB members are actually saying right now, it isn't like they realise that they've messed this up and they want to take it back. <laughs> you know, they're still in denial. Um, they're still um, sort of denying the possibility of a recession. Um, you know, they're sort of trying to prevent uh, markets pricing in near-term rate cuts. Um, that doesn't suggest to me that they've quite realized the magnitude of the errors that they've made. Um, and maybe, you know, what sort of bails them out in the euro area is that the economy just moves incredibly slowly. So, you know, you're not going to get all of a sudden European companies firing people en masse. You know, that's, that's the sort of recessionary dynamic that happens in the US. You know, companies just say, right, that's it. And they start cutting costs aggressively. That doesn't happen in Europe. You just get this very slow moving sort of painful downturn. And that's sort of what we're seeing. And so it doesn't sort of panic them into cutting interest rates aggressively. And I think they still have this sort of residual worry about the currency, this sort of ridiculous reverse currency war that we talked about before, sort of utterly futile attempt to support the currency by crashing your economy. Um, and, you know, they still they still have all of that. So um, they, they probably wait for the Fed to move first. They probably cut um, less aggressively than the Fed. But, you know, rate cuts have to be coming at this point. I mean, it's it's sort of obvious, even if you're a member of the ECB, you should be able to see this coming. Mm. And uh, Dario, I know that you're an avid watcher of the Bank of England as well. And I'd <laughs> like your take on the inflation developments uh, out of the UK over the past week. Uh, the inflation report released, was it on Wednesday morning, um, with the numbers from December, looked smoking hot on the surface at least, uh, especially in the services category, printing close to 1% month on month. Um, I've noted a very sort of stubborn pattern uh, of a sharp reversal in January. Obviously, service inflation is seasonally uh, very or very prone to seasonality, right? Um, but it seems yeah. like every time there's a big spike in service inflation in December, there's a big drop in, uh, in January and vice versa. So Dario, Is service inflation something to worry about in the UK still? Uh, I mean, I was always taught to ignore month-for-month -month changes in UK produce, uh, consumer prices because they're not seasonally adjusted. So mm. you always get these sort of very erratic movements from one month to the month. Uh, I think that there's been some weird stuff happening in sort of hotels, uh, airfares, some of the hospitality stuff. Um, it's not clear to me that that really reflects, you know, the thing that worries central bankers, the idea that you've got this sort of overheating labor market. Um, the UK labor market certainly was overheating in 12, 18 months ago, but I'm not sure that it is anymore because um, we've seen a lot of rebalancing of the labor market. So if you look at sort of job vacancies in the UK, they've absolutely plunged. Um, that sort of big demand supply imbalance that we had, much like in the US, in fact, it was worse than in the US, That's basically gone. Um, you know, wage inflation was much too high. It's now, you know, very clearly rolling over. I think that's very likely to continue. Um, 
So I, you know, personally, I don't, I don't find this, this, this situation particularly worrying from an inflation perspective. I think we're just lagging the US. I think we'll see a very clear disinflationary trend you know, through the course of this year. Uh, I think that the Bank of England is even more pessimistic about the supply side than the ECB. And probably, you know, they have good reasons to be pessimistic. I mean, we've had a series of unforced policy disasters over the past decade. Um, you know, very aggressive austerity in the UK, where frankly, you know, if you work in the in the government, you haven't had a pay rise in a decade. So you're pretty pissed off right now. So if you're a train worker or anything, you know, that hasn't had a pay rise, you're now, you know, striking at every opportunity. So the, the labour force has become a little bit more militant. I think part of that is this sort of legacy of austerity. You have the impact of austerity itself, which is that we have a, a health system that is basically broken. So that hit uh, labour supply quite hard after the pandemic. And then we we took the opportunity just before the pandemic to tell um, EU workers that they weren't particularly welcome in the UK anymore. And then surprise, surprise, you know, when we had the pandemic, lots of EU workers went home. And then for some bizarre reason, they didn't want to come back. So that's a massive hit to labour supply that's happened over the last three years. And so I think, you know, you can look at all of that, you know, a decade with no productivity growth. And you can say that the, the sort of longer term trade off between inflation and growth in the UK is probably deteriorated. Uh, I'm not sure how much I buy that, but I think Bank of England officials clearly do buy into it. I mean, we had Andrew Bailey <laughs> talking about this was the worst outlook for supply he'd ever seen in his career. Uh, which is a very pessimistic take on sort of long-term UK growth. I think that does make them a little bit more reluctant to ease. Um, there is a, there is even a sort of Bundesbank mentality at the Bank of England right now, bizarrely, because you have a few members that are sort of educated by, by the Bundesbank officials, you know, Otmar Issing is their hero and stuff like that. So there's a bit of reluctance to actually do what you need to do here. But I think, you know, we're on a very clear disinflationary trend. And I think like those other central banks, um, the Bank of England will be cutting. And you know, what, I, what I really wanted to say about this sort of cutting cycle is that, you know, this is sort of unambiguously good news. Because if you're a, a recessionista like Emil and you go back <laughs> sort of 12 months, you know, the, the only way you could come up with a really hard landing view or a really deep recession was you had to imagine this situation where the economy went into recession and central banks then just didn't react. You know, they were very slow cutting interest rates. And all of these central banks are now saying, you know, given the progress that has already happened in terms of inflation, we will now cut interest rates rapidly as soon as something goes wrong. Right? So that's policy optionality that we didn't have 18 months ago. And so if you think about the potential outcomes here, you've basically shrunk the tail of really nasty outcomes. That sort of really deep recession is now off the table because the one fundamental problem we have in all of these economies is just an interest rate problem. You know, interest rates are too high. That's causing all sorts of problems. There's still problems to come, I think, from high interest rates. You look at sort of SME balance sheets are going to deteriorate as they roll over high levels of debt. I think you have global property markets that basically be functioning on this idea that interest rates can't stay this high for long. So a lot of the sort of trickery that's been going on has basically been postponing problems to the future. If we just keep interest rates where they are, I think you're going to get this, this big squeeze that continues. But central banks are saying, well, you know, if, if anything does go wrong now, we will cut rates. And the Fed is going even further. 
because the Fed is now saying we don't even have to wait for something to go wrong before we cut interest rates. We can cut interest rates with nothing going wrong. So that, you know, that's a very different sort of policy dynamic to what we had, you know, even six months ago. And I think that cho- that totally changes the sort of distribution of outcomes here. And, you know, I always sort of believed in the soft landing. I always come in and talk about the soft landing. And then Emil afterwards talks about how there's a recession coming next quarter. <laughs> but, but I think that, um, you know, we, we've been on that path to a soft landing. And this policy pivot, if it happens soon, I think that that just sort of secures the soft landing. And I think that's where, at least from a Fed perspective, that's where central bankers are already. I think the ECB and the Bank of England are a little bit behind on this because there's still this ask covering, you know, that's going on from those central banks. But barring some really nasty shock to supply chains, I think that we're in a pretty good place right now. Uh, Dario, my own theory uh, is that given Emil's growing family size, uh, almost Mitt Romney size by, by now, he's trying to make his own little contribution uh, to making the housing market crisis. He needs a few more square meters now. So. <laughs> 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 uh, but it's helping demographics, I guess. So yeah, that, you know that's one of the big. <laughs> Indeed, Dario. <clears throat> the final question for you this uh, this week: um, this cocktail of supply shocks that you mentioned uh, in the UK. Where does it leave the destination, the R squared in the UK, relative to, for example, the eurozone or the US? Uh, I think it's probably higher, um, but I think that that's probably the wrong way to think about it because what I think it means is that the uh, Bank of England is probably going to have to tolerate slightly higher inflation on average than those other central banks. So maybe um, you know we struggle to get inflation all the way back down to two percent. In the end, um, you know, it's probably sufficient that it's trending towards two percent. For the Bank of England, so it may be that it's not fully reflected in interest rates. It may be that it just you just get this sort of more persistent inflation overshoot in the UK. I mean, you know, one of my sort of big theses on inflation is that you know we were in a world where two percent inflation was always this sort of ceiling on inflation. You know, where central banks were always struggling to get inflation up from below, and I think we're in a world now where two percent inflation becomes a floor. And maybe for the UK, you know, it's slightly higher than two percent, you know, two and a half percent, maybe even three percent, if those if that supply damage, you know, really pans out. Mm. But I think, you know, for all of these central banks, I think we're on a very clear rate cutting cycle now. It's just that some lag because of their own sort of personal incentives and biases. <laughs> Dario Perkins of TS Lombard, it's always great to host you. And I'll guess we'll see you again uh, at the Macro Sunday podcast in a couple of months. Uh, hopefully not with uh, new distortions out of the Red Sea to <laughs> to sort of wreak havoc with this disinflation picture. It's great to see you again, Dario. Good to see you both. Take care. Malatia, Back in uh, the studio after <laughs> the <laughs> discussion with uh, Dario Perkins. Um <laughs> It's always a pleasure to have, to host Dario. Um, I, I kind of get the feeling that uh, Dario is is more of a social democrat than than the two of us, even though that we're from the Nordic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do, do you get the same vibes, Emil? Or <laughs> yeah, probably it's that it aligns very much with my, with my own beliefs. So uh, there's that discrepancy, but uh, obviously he's British, so not his yeah, fault. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm a fiscal conservative myself, and then I, yeah. I, I had to, 
<laughs> to close my ears a couple of times today, but uh, that's how it is from time to time. Uh, Emil, um, speaking of, of the central bank outlook, uh, one thing that we <laughs> kind of spared Dario uh, of uh, was the discussion on uh, the Fed balance sheet. It's 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 a topic of interest yeah. uh, for many um, asset managers, funds out there on an ongoing basis. Um you and I have sort of talked over and over about the increase in bank reserves in the dollar market, but it's not really like it's feeding through um, to sort of a broader positivity in asset markets. So what's your take on, on, on the balance sheet and the ramifications for the market here? Is, is, is it anything to, 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 to really ponder about or, or what do you make of it? It's something to watch, but it's not something you should trade one to one when you talk at when you, when you talk about relevant uh, asset prices, right? So I think there's one thing that's that's and I mean now now I did receive a barrage from from Dario on on my recession call that at least looks <laughs> I mean it's 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 looking thin here, right? But mm. um, even still, um, how do you justify the current prices of U.S. equities um, without uh, inflation kicking back in and? And companies being capable of of hiking up earnings, so that's something to warn out. So even if you have liquidity on one hand, that do you necessarily, you know, put all your chips into basically quite expensive uh, risk assets? I mean, it's by no means a by no means a clear cut from from my perspective. Um, so there's that, but I think I think this first half of 2024 is going to be really really interesting. When it comes to what the Federal Reserve will do with the refi rates, the bank term funding program, I still think can you know it, it's not it's not a, a, ma a major bomb just waiting to explode or anything. They can extend their loans and whatnot, but they're, they're going to introduce new policies. I think um, the question is merely which ones and what 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 trade offs will they be balancing? I think that's that's something to look out look out for 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 fund managers and, and everyone else alike. Yeah. And this bank term funding program is at least is at least scheduled to mature in March. Uh, so let's see whether they dare yeah. allowing that during an election year. Um, we should yeah. we ought to remember that. I mean, the main recipients uh, of this lending facility are the small regional banks, right? Hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, if you've been paying attention to what's going on in. In uh, both private equity and to a, to a lesser extent, uh, corporate real estate, there has been some. I mean, so some somebody defaulted on a corporate mortgage in in some mm. New York office and whatnot. And I think that's just first of of many to come, and that's going to wear on on relevant balance sheets, right? I mean, you can't really you can't really avoid all the all the you know the consequences of the insolvencies. You can merely you know, balance them out in the financial system. So that's that's going to be an act in, in the coming months, no doubt, because the asset prices simply don't, you know, you can't justify them relative to the leverage attached to them. So there you are. And, and I mean, speaking of leverage, um, mm. I wrote a piece on the so-called supplementary yeah. leverage ratio earlier this week, uh, yeah. a topic that no one cares about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me try and explain why you should care about it. Um, mm. I, I always try to sort of be ahead of the next narrative uh, when I assess all the liquidity developments and sort of the financial plumbing of, of, of the dollar system. 
And the supplementary leverage ratio um, is uh, sort of a capital ratio on, on top of, of typical capital tiers uh, designed to put capital aside uh, to sort of match the leverage ratio of um, a systemically important bank, right? Um, so why is that ratio suddenly important again? Well, when you look at how bank reserves and U.S. treasuries are treated, um, under the SLR uh, legislation, uh, you see quite the difference between how they're risk-weighted. Um, so when GZIPs, so systemically important banks, receive new bank reserves uh, as the overnight reverse repo facility is being depleted over the course of the first quarter here, those same banks will basically be constrained in their warehousing capabilities of U.S. Treasuries as a consequence of the SLR legislation. So when an increase in bank reserves stems from technicalities, such as a drawdown of the ONRRP instead of, of outright QE from the central bank, um, it, is, it is actually a pretty big issue for the U.S. Treasury market uh, due to SLR legislation. Michelle Bowman of the FOMC commented on this over the past week uh, and there was suddenly sort of a slight sense of urgency uh, in her message um, and I mean I wouldn't completely rule out that we get to the point where the SLR will have to be scrapped again as it uh, as it was or it was rather suspended right after the pandemic uh, onset in in March 2020 uh, simply due to the fact that uh, primary dealers can warehouse more U.S. treasuries when the SLR is not in place. Um, so ultimately, what I'm saying here is that I think we might have a pretty decent uh, amount of turmoil coming up, or volatility rather, in U.S. treasuries just as a consequence of this mm. influx of bank reserves. This is very technical. No one yeah. cares at, at, at this moment in time, but go on, go, go to research.com and read the article if and, you're interested. And, I, right? and actually on that point, Andreas, two things I noted today. There's a U.S. Treasury envoy uh, taking meetings in China right now. Mm. And if you remember, the Chinese have I mean, they haven't really uh, stopped buying uh, U.S. dollar assets, but they have basically stopped buying U.S. treasuries and bought, buying agencies instead. Um, and I do think that all the volatility we saw in late Q4, that's something that, that policymakers are aware of at this point. And it's not as if they, they're going to get much help from the fiscal side of things. So it's something they have to monitor. So I think it's a really interesting story and something to look out for. Yeah. And how do we play this, Emil? Um, <laughs> I guess, I get first of the, all, yeah. let me just... Yeah, uh, we, we, now we get to the tricky point. Um, Training-wise, uh, I think the dollar curve steepener is still a good bet here. Um. And when you look at the diverging trends between dollar inflation and euro inflation, partially driven by the diverging trends between dollar liquidity and euro liquidity, uh, I'm very tempted to take on reflationary curve bets in the US relative to the uh, euro curve. You could do that via fly structures, you could do that via uh, steepness, um, or you could do it straight in the FX space, right? Uh, just yeah. being short euro dollar, which has been performing okay. Um, dollar yen is performing decently well, uh, I guess, on top of this. Um, probably, yes, dollar yen is just 
carry positive, neat, and efficient way of being short U.S. Treasuries, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Milan, outside of that, um, you uh, <laughs> you convinced us to to trade <laughs> copper on the long side. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I guess it has something to do with China. So, elaborate, yeah. please. <laughs> so, so. Um, well, we just received the GDP numbers from last year, uh, the official ones anyway, uh, from China, which are obviously, well, let's just put it straight out. It's cooked, obviously, right? And I think that uh, markets will start to force the Chinese hand into at least, you know, uh, revealing something about forecoming stimulus plans that will be needed to reach the actual GDP targets for 2024. Uh, mm. And that should feed into relevant asset prices, and that would include commodities in particular. And also, you know, it plays it plays out against uh, being long dollar. So in in the event, you know, we screw things up, we we have a bit of of a balancing there. So that that's basically mm. the case here. Um, but what what really should be the story from China right now is just how much of a beating Chinese equities can can can, uh, can take. Uh, we see state funds now piling in from from uh, from the mainland simply to to establish a floor. So perhaps you could see some reversal, even though the, the I mean the underlying situation is just ridiculous. So uh, be careful out there. You might be catching a knife if you really get piled in. So yeah. be on the sidelines. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so. Maybe I can conclude this week's show with a piece of advice. Yeah. Um, if you're on the look for a divorce, please buy Chinese equities. Uh, yeah. If you're not on the look for a divorce, then don't. Um, buy tampons. Trust me, I dipped my toes in that trade a couple of times in 23 without any luck. Um, Emil Müller, great seeing you again. Um, Likewise. I think it's time for the disclaimer of the show, um, given that we just discussed the trade ideas of the week. So uh, here is Gennaro Gazzuso with a piece of advice when you listen to us. Sometimes it may be good, sometimes it may be shit. And with the words of Gennaro Gazzuso, it's time to say goodbye from the Macro Sunday podcast. Remember that this is your last chance to use the Macro 30 coupon code to get 30% off your yearly subscription at stenoresearch.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, use Macro 30 to get 30% off today. The offer ends very soon. Thank you for watching and listening to the Macro Sunday. I'm Andreas Dino. See you again next Sunday. <laughs>